Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Would you please take your Bibles and open them to Daniel chapter 7? Daniel chapter 7 in a Bible study that I've entitled Another Wild Dream. And I'll be reading to you from the New Living Translation. As we find in verse 1, earlier during the reign, first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, Daniel had a dream and saw visions as he lay in his bed. He wrote down the dream and this is what he saw. So many ways in life we see things and process things differently than God does. We are so quickly to see the sickness when God sees the healing. And it's so fast for us to focus in on our troubles when God sees the triumph. And it's so easy to see the tribulation and get buried under the weight of tribulation while God sees the training and the purpose in it all. Man sees the power and the prestige and the permanence of this world while God all the while knows that it's temporary. We have this tendency to put our roots down, to want to make a name for ourselves. Even within a spiritual realm, there are men and women that want to build their own kingdoms. They want to focus on themselves. When God recognizes that the things of men are not very powerful and not very prestigious, Jesus really said it best in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. It's, it's the ultimate observation. He says, Jesus says to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Now we probably memorize that, you must deny yourself. But you need to give up your own way. Lay aside your own agenda and learn to take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, Jesus says, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? And that's an important, is anything worth more than your soul? Yes or no? No. And yet the value of things have a tendency to overwhelm how we even value our own souls, let alone the souls of others. And in the truest sense of the word, life is only found in Jesus. Jesus declared to us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And in its real technical, full definition, Jesus alone is the life giver, but he's life in and of itself. And as we learn, you can jot it down in Isaiah 55, around verse 8 or so, where we learn that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And it would do us well to gain the thoughts and the perspective of God because his thoughts are so different than ours in the human realm. So when we come to these dreams here, in chapter 7 we have Daniel's dream, we have to go back a few chapters to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Because the dreams are about the same thing, but they're very different perspectives. Different dreams, same thing. In Daniel chapter 2, you'll recall Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of the coming empires. It was this great image the king saw. 
It was actually a peek, as we learned, into the future history as coming world kingdoms would emerge and fall. And what a dream it was. It started out with the fine gold, the head made of fine gold, which represented the Babylonian kingdom. And then in that great image, the chest and the arms were of silver, speaking of the coming kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Then they had the belly and the thighs of bronze, which spoke of the coming Grecian empire, one after another. Then there were the legs of iron, speaking of the coming Roman empire. And then finally there were the feet mixed with iron and clay, which speak to a time far in the future of a revived in times Roman empire, Roman type empire. That was man's perspective. That was fallen man's perspective. That was King Nebuchadnezzar. That's how he saw things. And of course, in that strong image that he erected and made everybody bow down to, that's when Daniel's friends refused to bow down. That's when they were thrown into the fiery furnace. In that image, the Babylonian empire representing King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylon was gold. It was fine. It was brilliant. It was of the best materials. Because that was Nebuchadnezzar's, that was his attitude. Man has a tendency, and I'm sure you've seen it in your own life, we have a tendency to elevate ourselves above others. The kingdom of God and the following of Jesus is so countercultural. Where he teaches us the way up is actually down. The, The way to prominence is through servanthood. Isn't that different than some of the seminars you've been to and some of the training they give you at work? The training they give you at work is better yourself and work hard and climb up and you'll do better and you'll make more and eventually you'll reach the top. But many people find that even after they reach the top, it's not what was promised and it wasn't fulfilling. You reach the top of the pinnacle of whatever you were after and then you stand there and go, is this all that is? I spent my whole life chasing this? See, God's perspective is very different. Because in chapter 7, Daniel's dream covers the same territory, but from a different perspective. Daniel's dream is given to him by God. And it's not of an image when it speaks of the coming kingdoms. It's a, a dream filled with wild beasts. And it's as if God is saying for us in the book of Daniel and to Daniel and to the ruling kingdoms that God's perspective on things is the government of man is not gold and silver and precious stones. The kingdoms of men are beastly and wild and self-centered, taking advantage of people, not serving them. And we're entering into a new section of Daniel In the first six chapters, we have the personal life of Daniel, and the study was more of a narrative in nature. And so we were able to read through and comment along the way. Now, starting in chapter 7 till the end of the book, we're going to be entering into the prophetic nature of Daniel. And we're going to look at world history and details and things that look far into the future. Most of it, as Daniel was writing it, was still future for him. But as we look back, we can see so much of it fulfilled. Daniel writing prophetic, it was prophetic for him. But now many years later, we can look back and see what Daniel predicted with such clarity and accuracy, so clear and so accurate that Daniel is one of the books that the critics love to attack because it's such a powerful book of the prophetic power of God. And now from this chapter to the end, we'll have some of the most amazing prophetic visions in all of the Bible. Some have even called Daniel a little version of Revelation. 
It's filled with insights. And a study in Revelation and Daniel, they go together. And if you want to study Revelation on your own, it wasn't too many years ago that we went through verse by verse through Revelation, and that's all available up on our app, and you can download it, take it with you, and study it together of the end times. A study of the end times will, and a study of prophecy will do a few things. Number one, it will build your confidence and faith that what God says is true. And secondly, it will build in you an expectation that what hasn't happened yet that God said is true, and it will come to pass. There isn't one thing that God promised that hasn't come to pass. He has always kept his word. So it says in verse, verse one of chapter seven earlier. Now those of you that read through the Bible kind of like any other book, it seems to be read chronologically, but chapter seven is a step backwards in time. Daniel, this is about 20 to 30 years earlier than the chapter we just read. Daniel's a lot younger in chapter 7, so chapter 7 isn't chronological in the book of Daniel. He's around 68, 70 years old when he dreams these things, and he wrote down his wild dream. And in this, he's emphasizing the unity of the revelation of God and the successive stages in how God gives his revelation. The Dream predates some of what we already studied. You, know, you can probably put this dream chronologically in the book of Daniel somewhere between chapter four and chapter five. And the unity of the revelation of what's given to us, you see the comparison of this dream with the dream in chapter two. And like I said, taking notes will be very helpful for you because I'm gonna give you a lot of information that seals and ties the book together. In these dreams, both dreams have four symbols of kingdoms followed by the return of Messiah. Both dreams show a duality in the second kingdom, the Medes and the Persians. Both dreams show a tenfold division of that final end times kingdom. And the same interpretation is found for the ten horns, as you'll see in a moment, in the Messiah's kingdom that will destroy all previous kingdoms. But there is a difference. A careful study is you're introduced to a small or a little horn by the time we get to verse eight, the key person of the last kingdom who's known as the man of sin. He's known as the son of perdition. He's also known in the Bible as the coming prince, but most commonly you know him as Mr. Antichrist. And he's mentioned here in verse eight. Under King Darius, another great world empire was established and the head of gold is long gone. The breast and arms of silver is established, and the absolute monarchies replaced with the government of constitutional law of the Medes and the Persians. And we learned how Daniel was given a prominent place from kingdom to kingdom. Notice verse 2 now. In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of the great sea. And anytime you see the great sea, or the sea might be capitalized, that's in reference to the Mediterranean Sea. The Mediterranean Sea, if you, want to jot, if you like to write in your Bibles, you can write a little note there. So he's turning the surface of the great sea with strong winds blowing from every direction. Verse three. Then four huge beasts came up out of the water, each different from the others. The first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. As I watched, its wings were pulled off and it was left standing with two hind feet on the ground like a human being. And it was given a human mind. Then I saw a second beast and it looked like a bear and it was rearing up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And I heard a voice saying to it, get up, 
devour the flesh of many people. Then the third of these, verse 6, of these strange beasts appeared, and it looked like a leopard. And it had four birds' wings on its back, and it had four heads. Great authority was given to this beast. Then in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts, and it had ten horns. As I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. This little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. And I watched as the thrones were put in place and the ancient one, or the ancient of days, sat down to judge. His clothing was white as snow. His hair was the purest wool. He sat on fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire. And a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him and millions stood to attend him. Then the court began its session and the books were opened. Stay with me, verse 11. I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire. The three other beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a little while longer. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Now, I just want to pause for a second before we go through the elements of the dream and just say this. You think you've had wild dreams. <laughs> you think you woke up with some crazy thing that you dreamt. Imagine Daniel receiving this and the things that he saw and the importance of having to write them down. I already mentioned that the sea, the great sea, is the Mediterranean. You can see that by referencing Revelation 17, uh, verses 1 and 15. And the great sea, the Mediterranean sea, has a picture and a type. It represents the nations of the world, the mass of humanity, primarily of the Gentile world and the Gentile nations. And the wind represents here God's power expressed in judgment using both heavenly and earthly forces from all directions to influence the nations as he wills. And it's interesting too, as you study through the scriptures, that of the 120 references of wind in the Bible, about 90 in the Old Testament, 30 in the New, well over half of them are related to events and ideas reflecting the sovereignty of God. If there's anything that will build your faith and trust in the living God, it is having a healthy understanding of his power or his sovereign control. That God is sovereign and he does as he wills and we do well to submit to him and surrender to him. And so notice in beginning in verse four, the first beast. The first beast was a lion and he had these eagle wings. This beast corresponds to the head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And it's interesting because in archaeological discoveries, the national symbol of Babylon was a winged lion. And here he has a picture in his dream of huge winged lions. And even the royal Babylonian palaces were guarded by these lions with wings. And it says here that her wings were pulled off and was lifted up from the earth. It has a, an interesting insight on what happened in Nebuchadnezzar 
when he was caught up in his pride. Nebuchadnezzar, the lesson that he learned and the lesson that Belshazzar learned after him was that God is able to bring down the proud. And even as I've been having discussions with the team here, the pastors here in the last couple days, I couldn't help, as I was talking to them about various things over the years, I couldn't help but remember in many ways, in little small ways, but in a, in a very large way, how God dealt with me in pride that was in my life. And I can speak, I, I mean, I know I believe in the authority of the Bible, and in no way do I want to undermine the Bible's teaching, but by way of experience, I can assure you that God knows how to deal with pride in our lives. That even if you today, you know, maybe in your pride, think, well, I'm not, you know, one of the first signs of pride is that when someone points it out to you and you, you respond, I'm not prideful, okay, you should receive. You know, if you got a lot of different people coming to talk to you, maybe people aren't talking to you and voiding you completely because they know you won't receive it. Pride in its, all its manifestations is a dangerous thing in the believer's relationship, in our relationship with God. And like Nebuchadnezzar, fortunately for me, it wasn't as dramatic as the experience of Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't as dramatic that God would need to bring the writing on the wall in my life. But certainly in a metaphorical way, we all see the writing on the wall. God wants our attention. He's attracted, God is, to humility. He loves to hang out with the humble. And he, the Bible says, resist the proud. But he's a giver of grace to the humble. And it's so encouraging to me. They learned. And, and if today you're listening to me and this is a word of warning or you're like totally filled with pride today, so much so that you're mad at me for even mentioning it, understand God is able to bring down those who are proud. And when it comes to humbling yourself, there's two primary choices that you and I have. We can choose to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and the promise is that he'll lift us up or God will humble you. And they're both painful processes. That, that, I, that admission and repentance of the sin of pride is a, is a difficult, painful process. Even in the, in the process of perhaps God ripping it out of you and showing it to you and seeing yourself in the mirror or the conviction of God's word or family trying to rescue you. You know, it could even get so bad that the, your family sees it so much that they call an intervention on you and a surprise meeting to confront you with the issues in your life. It's painful, but it is far more painful when God humbles you and brings humility into your life. It's much better for us to choose that. If we won't walk in humility, then we will crawl like Nebuchadnezzar in humiliation. And just as Nebuchadnezzar came, became an animal for seven years, when we see this, there is this pulling off, this wrenching of the wings of the first beast that represents the Babylonian kingdom. Verse five, the next thing that Daniel saw in his dream the second beast was a bear and it had three ribs in its mouth. This corresponds to the dream of Nebuchadnezzar of the chest of arms, chest and arms of silver. And the combination of the two formed a new ruling empire. Why are they described like a bear? Well, they had become very large and huge and massive with an army over two and a half million fighting men. And that was strong, but it was also slow and sluggish. 
And the three ribs speak of the three ruling empires they conquered on the way to rule, including Egypt, Lydia, and Babylon. And they did arise in each much, much flesh in their victories. The reference of being stronger on one side than on the other reflects the great strength of the Persians in the empire. And remember too that when Daniel had his dream, the Babylonian empire was still in existence. So it's possible that these nations, as Daniel was dreaming this, were less prominent than they became. It was in an earlier stage. Notice the next one in verse 6. The third of these strange beasts looked like a leopard. It had four wings and four heads. This represents the kingdom of Greece. This was the belly and the thigh of brass or bronze in Nebuchadnezzar. This was the swift movement of a leader by the name of Alexander the Great. The four wings on the leopard's back made it even move faster. That was his strength. The strength of the Grecian Empire and Alexander the Great was not in its numbers, but it's in his tenacity and, its, and his, his scheming and his battle plans. And I quote, with the swiftness of a leopard, Alexander the Great conquered most of the civilized world all the way from Macedonia to Africa and eastward to India. The lightning character of his conquests is without precedent in the ancient world. And this is fully keeping in with the image of the speed embodied by the leopard himself with the four wings on its back. And when the Grecian Empire was divided, the four wings, the four heads, represent the four generals that took over after the suicide of Alexander the Great. Because history and tradition tells us that at the end of his conquering, when he looked around and saw that there was nothing else to conquer, it depressed Alexander so great that he committed suicide. It just didn't satisfy. There's a lot to be said here. Let me quote one of the historians most modern commentators think that the Lysimachus, who ruled Thrace and Bithynia, Cassandra, uh, Cassander, Macedonia and Greece, Seleucus, Syria, Babylonia and the Eastern territories, and Ptolemy ruled Egypt, Palestine and the Arabia Petraea. Each of these successors ruled one of the geographic divisions of Alexander's empire, Greece, Western Asia, Egypt and Persia. The exact identification of the rulers is still debatable because it took about 20 years for the kingdom to be successfully divided. One of the purposes of sharing some of these historical facts with you is to remind you that the Bible in its truthfulness is rooted in time and history. And not only is it rooted in time and history, but enough information is given that you can test the Bible from history. You can test the truths to see if they came, came to pass. And notice the final Thing, the final beast in verse 7 is the fourth one. This was a dreadful and look, terrible looking beast that was very strong, devouring, it says in verse 7, and crushing its victims with huge iron teeth, trampling the remains under its feet. And it was different than any other beast with these ten horns. This is, corresponds uh, to the Roman Empire and what Nebuchadnezzar saw with the legs of iron. And the teeth of iron devouring and breaking in pieces, the Roman Empire was the first empire that conquered and ruled and was described as ruling with an iron fist. Daniel didn't compare this beast with any modern equivalent. It was unique in every way, truly dreadful, terrifying, and extremely strong. Let me quote, the Roman Empire was ruthless in its destruction of civilizations and peoples. 
killing captives by the thousands and selling them into slavery by the hundreds of thousands. Rome had no interest in raising the conquered nations to any high level of development. All her designs were imperial in nature. Let the nations be crushed and stamped underfoot. Which brings us to verse 8. If you think the dream wasn't enough, verse 8, as I was looking at the horns, suddenly another horn, small horn, appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. This little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. So the horns with a little horn rising up is that end times kingdom. Ten toes that were mixed with iron and clay in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And this differs a little bit with this little horn because back in, in verse 8 you see he notices this 11th horn rising up among the 10 that displaced three of the 10 horns. The horn had human eyes, probably symbolic of intelligence, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And quite clearly this is a picture of the coming world leader known as the Antichrist. Daniel saw another little horn in a vision that he reported having in this section. And however, the differences between the two little horns argue for being different rulers. And so it takes a little bit more study on these things. But notice from what Daniel records, it seems clear that he saw something happening in the courts of heaven. It says in verse 9, I watched as the thrones were put in place and the ancient ones sat down to judge. His clothing was white as snow. He gets his picture into the heavenly realms. His hair purest wool sat on a fiery throne, wheels of blazing fire. A river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Millions, many millions stood to attend him. And the court began its session and the books were open. Referring, God, referring to God as the ancient one or the ancient of days speaks to us of God's purity and eternality and his holiness on his throne. And the end of all the, pre, the prior three empires contrasts with the end of this fourth one. God took away the dominion of each of the earlier three kingdoms one by one, but they continued to exist as elements in the kingdom that followed them for some time. However, God will cut off the fourth empire and it will continue no longer. It will end of it itself, verse 11. I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire. Verse 12, the other three beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a little while longer. And then in verses 13 and 14, what happens? Daniel gets another view of the heavenly scene. Someone like, one like the Son of Man was brought before the Ancient of Days. It says, notice, my vision continued that night. I saw someone like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approaches the Ancient One and was led into his presence. He was given authority and honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race, nation, and language would obey him. And his rule is eternal. It'll never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. The angelic attendants perhaps courting him in and bringing him in and the description glorifies the ancient one of days and then proceeds to give this person authority to rule on the earth one like the son of man similarities with human being as the as the son of man title implies and yet he comes with the clouds of heaven which elsewhere in scripture describe 
God coming to earth, like the Son of Man appears to be a God-man. And this is all back in Daniel. We're not in the New Testament yet, giving us insight of the coming Messiah and how God already, before, before the doctrine of, of the Trinity is fully developed in the New Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity is sprinkled all throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus did destroy, well, we have to ask ourselves, did Jesus destroy the Roman Empire in his first coming, yes or no? He didn't come as a destroying. That was the frustrating part of the people and the expectation of the Jewish people in his first coming. They were under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And in all of the difficulties that we see in our own form of government, in our own country, and even the countries around the world, doesn't come close to the Roman Empire of the first century. Doesn't come close to the oppression and the absolute imperialism and evilness. Remember, it was the Romans that perfected crucifixion. They perfected the torturous killing of people. It wasn't, even, it wasn't a tool invented by them. They just took a tool that the Persians invented and perfected it. Why? To send a message to anyone that crossed Rome. And the message was very simple. It could be said in a lot of different ways, but I think it would be summarized this way. Don't mess with Rome. And it was the very invention and perfection of crucifixion that was prophesied and predicted in the Psalms before it was even invented would be the method according to the scriptures that Messiah would be killed. It was mentioned in the Bible before it was even invented. So we know that in chapter 7, and we'll finish up the chapter next time, we know in this dream that it's pointing to a future kingdom. Not in the first coming of Jesus Christ, but prophetically pointing to his second coming. And if there is a lack in the body of Christ today, I mean, there's a few, lack, there's a few things that are lacking in the body of Christ today. First of all, there is a lack of prayer and support for the nation of Israel that much of the church has turned their back on Israel. And a wicked doctrine known as replacement theology has taken its place. So that now there's this thought that God's dealings with the nation of Israel are over and done. They've lost their chance and God will not give them another chance. And now God has replaced them with the church. That's, that's a simple summary of replacement theology. So that now the church has replaced Israel. So all of the promises that were made to Israel are now conveyed somehow to the church. Falsehood in every sense of the word. Israel is a distinct entity that prophetically fulfilled prophecy when they came back and are currently day by day coming back to live in the land of Israel, even as I speak right now. People getting off the plane with Aliyah, to live in Israel because in the last days God said he will bring his people back, number one. Number two, there are many promises given distinctly to the people of Israel that are yet to be fulfilled that I believe biblically will be fulfilled in the last seven years of human history. Do you know what the last seven years of human history is called in the Bible? The great tribulation, time of Jacob's trouble. And God will turn his attention away from the church. This is the time period where God has turned his attention, is gathering men and women, primarily Gentiles, into salvation. 
And you know, the church is a distinct entity. You really have three distinct entities from God's perspective. You have Israel, you have the church, excuse me, you have Gentiles, and then you have the church that are made up of redeemed Jews and Gentiles. Very distinct in their relationship. And as you see things unfold, you will see the predictions of God to take care of and fulfill all the promises that are yet to be fulfilled to the distinct nation of Israel. And so we know here in chapter 7 that this is not speaking of the first coming of Jesus Christ because now we look back and we can see that in the first coming, Jesus did not overthrow the Roman Empire. In his first coming, Jesus came not as a conquering king, but as a suffering servant. And he came as the sacrifice complete for your sins and mine. This is a prophetic pointing of the second coming of Jesus Christ to initiate the fifth kingdom that destroys the fourth. And I just say as we head out, I don't know what kind of dream you're going to have today. I don't know if this might even stir up things and you're going to email me this week, man, Ed, I had the wildest dream. These beasts are here and I don't know and I couldn't sleep. Thank you very much for that Bible study. But whatever, whatever dream you have, it will not compare to what God gave Daniel because God gave Daniel this dream for the sake of understanding his perspective on the kingdoms of men. Challenging your perspective on the kingdoms of men. Because I'm certain there are people listening to me today that have put their hope and their trust in a president or a governmental system or a country. And I'm here to remind you that only King Jesus is worthy of that level of trust in your life. Politics won't save you. Government won't save you. Systems won't save you. Only Jesus Christ saves. And if you will take the time and energy and effort to invest and devote yourself into the eternal, if you will choose today to lose your life, you will gain not only your life, but also eternal life. But if you seek to keep your life, to hold on to it with all that you have, to build a little kingdom, to ignore prophetic warnings and insights, to listen to this Bible study and just say, oh yeah, whatever, Daniel. Dan, you don't believe in Daniel and the lion. You don't believe in Daniel and his friends in the fiery furnace. You don't believe in all the prophecies. For anyone that would ever ask me that, I'll just give you the answer up front. The answer is yes, yes, yes. I believe in everything that the Bible says, especially Daniel and all that Daniel has to say because Jesus declared that Daniel was a prophet and in his writings, he was prophetically accurate. And if it's good enough for Jesus Christ, certainly good enough for me and good enough for you. So Father, thank you for the insights as we get into the deeper things of Bible study and facts and figures, I pray, God, that we would have ears to hear what your spirit is saying, that we would come to appreciate that when Daniel had this dream, there was still a Babylonian kingdom. It was wild, beyond compare. We have the benefit of looking backwards with hindsight and can see the fulfillment of your dreams. And I just get this burden right now, Lord, that there are some listening to me that have been given promises and insights, but they haven't experienced them yet. And they're, they're 
believing by faith and they're holding fast, but it's been a year or two or three or ten, even as we saw with, um, you know, today with Joseph, it says that he was in prison and as he helped the baker and the, the guy that, the butler, um, he was so hopeful because he's, you know, tell them I'm here. And then your word says he was forgotten. And that's a real, I just pray for those today that feel like they're forgotten. That they feel abandoned. Part of it's because they felt it in the human realm. And then they kind of associate with you, God, because things aren't going the way. They feel like you've forgotten them, that you've abandoned them, that you don't care about them. But then um, with Joseph, it says, like in the next chapter, after two years, there was another stirring of events and they remembered Joseph. And Lord, while you're not a man and you don't forget us, I just pray for that, that sense of, um, you know, that affirmation, God, that you would just give that to your people today that you haven't forgotten them and that waiting's not a bad place to be as painful as it might be. Those that are just dealing with chronic illness and they're upset and offended and because it's so hard, it's so difficult, it just never leaves, God. I pray for healing in their body today, God, that you would touch them. I pray that you would relieve the tension, that you relieve the headaches, you would take away the, the issues with the nerve endings, that you would take away the tingling in their feet, God, that you would just have your hand upon them in a physical way, that maybe that would be a way tonight, God. I pray by faith that you would affirm yourself in their lives. And yet at the same time, should your will be different, that you at the same time would affirm your presence in our lives. That we would trust you no matter what we see and no matter what we experience. That, that you are God that transcends what we feel and where we are today, God. And I pray you just, I just, God, I release this sense of faith in our church that God, just wherever we are, that you would increase our faith like the disciples said. That you would do that work into us individually. You would do that among us as a church family. You would empower us and strengthen us for the wait, but that we wouldn't waste our lives upset that we're waiting, but that we would wait and watch, and we would wait and watch and work, and we'd be faithful until you come. And so, God, pour out your spirit on us. May, may you be well-pleased, God, with us, and I know you are in Christ, and I just pray that you, we would find ourselves in you tonight as we head out, thinking of this wild dream, Lord, and your prophetic word of the coming kingdoms and the end of the world and the end of the age. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.